Hello, this is Brian Bullington, and I am pastor of New Song Family Church in Ventuk, Namibia. I'm so glad that you have joined us today, and it's my prayer that this podcast message will help you to grow closer to Jesus as you walk daily with Him. Oh, good morning, church. Um, Thank you. Um, Today's reading is taken from Romans chapter 14 and 15. So if you have have your Bible with you, why don't you turn to Romans chapter 14. We'll look at verses 1 through 3, and then from 7 until chapter 15, verse 7. Um, But it will be on the screen as well. There we go. So Romans chapter 14, it reads as follows. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord, Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating and drinking, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better to not eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude and mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Why don't we ask for God's help as we study this? Father, thank you for this new morning. Thank you that your mercies are new. Thank you that we get to look at your word together and that we have a God who speaks. Thank you that our role is like that of Samuel, who says, here I am, Lord, speak. Your servant listens. Help us to have that attitude this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, a very warm welcome from me as well to all of you, to those uh, who are new here today, and to those who might not know me. My name is Vilko, or uh, Wilko, Viliko, whatever works really. Um, 
and it's a, it's a real joy for me to be here with you today. Many of you will know that we've been doing a series on how to discern God's voice in our everyday lives, and we're continuing that theme today. Now, as we consider the topic of God's speech, pretty much immediately we're faced with a problem, or we're faced with difficulty. You see, there are some things that God made abundantly clear right from the word go, um, such as the deity of Christ, the necessity of spiritual rebirth, the atonement for sin, all of these things the Bible is clear about. But there are many items, many important items, that the Bible is just completely quiet on. So items such as specific financial investment advice, items whether you should eat meat or not, whether you should be vegan or not, items on whether you should support critical race theory or champion a basic universal income for all people, or whether you should get four or just two vaccine boosters. All of these items the Bible is quiet on. And we'd love to know God's voice, wouldn't we? And yet, somehow, he doesn't speak very loudly. And then I find it highly interesting that on the items that God is silent about, the quieter he gets, really, the louder we get to fill that void. The more we try to drown each other out through a cacophony of what is ultimately, unfortunately, very often, simply self-appeasing opinions, self-righteous opinions. So the question for us today is how do we proceed? How do we move into areas that are unmarked? How do we navigate areas that we have no map for? Put simply, how do we use the freedom that God has given us? And that's precisely where our passage today fits in. Romans 14 and 15, I think, are the compass to us for these uncharted waters. So let's consider these verses at some depth. And first, we must start with the context. You see, this passage was written not into empty space, but into a specific context, into a specific situation. It was written to Rome in the first century, and, and it was specifically written to Jewish Christians because they were unwilling to eat meat that was not kosher. They didn't eat what wasn't prepared in the Old or according to the Old Testament regulations according to the old cultural traditions of the Jews. It seems almost through Paul's words that they assumed that they'd be better Christians if they abstained, and if they held on to Christ, but also to these old regulations. Now, some of you, um, as we were reading that, might have thought of another passage that sounds almost identical, but it's addressed to a different group of people, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, we won't be reading that today, but it's addressed to a different group. It's addressed to Gentile Christians in the city of Corinth, Gentiles is just another word for non-Jews, essentially. So these were Greeks in Corinth who also refused to eat meat, but for a very different reason. You see, in Corinth, uh, every morning before the market opened, the priests of the local deities would meander through and would bless all of the food that was available at the market. They would sacrifice, in other words, their meat to their gods before it was publicly available to be sold. And so the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, thought it was somehow unclean. They felt that they needed to abstain because they'd be most likely better Christians if they didn't eat this unclean meat. So in some ways, both the Jews and the Gentiles, and both Christians, mind you, 
thought they'd somehow have a better connection to God if they simply abstained from eating, in this case, meat. What is so interesting about that is that though their situations are quite different, both groups managed to just completely ignore what Jesus had to say on the matter. You see, as, as early as Mark 7, or you find it in, in Acts uh, 10 and 15, I believe, we find Christ just abolishing those regulations. He says, it's no longer necessary. I have made all food clean. The background of clean food was from the Old Testament. It was symbolic, a way of God showing his people that he is different to them. And that if they wanted to approach him, they needed to come on his terms and not their own. And one of the ways that he could show them was through food. He said, some things are clean and some things are unclean. And if you only eat what is clean, you can come. It's symbolism, but it was very powerful. And it was something that the Jewish Christians still held to even after Christ. Because they thought it would make them maybe a little bit more acceptable. And Christ, of course, had done away with all of that. He had made people permanently clean. So both cultures ignored what Christ had said, and both cultures tried to improve themselves anyway. And, and by the way, this is important. They kept trying to improve themselves in ways that their culture considered appropriate, that their tribe thought was good. Their life choices were not determined by Christ alone, but by Christ plus their culture. Their seemingly holy decisions were not based on God's voice. They weren't based on God's word, but at the end of the day on cultural conformity. And I put it before you that that hasn't changed for us today. You see, none of us are free from culture's influences on our conduct. All of us, whether we're aware of it or not, are shaped by our culture. And our culture will always subtly influence what we think is appropriate and what isn't. And, and by the way, Netflix and TikTok are also cultures, and they shape our behavior. Just a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, I returned from a Bible college in Cape Town where I studied. And one of the fascinating things about studying in a liberal city at a conservative college with Africans from all over the continent is, is how it becomes a melting pot of cultural views. You see, some considered alcohol, social drinking, to be an absolute taboo. And others, yet others, considered that a short skirt, well, that's just unbefitting dress for a woman. And before I continue, let me be clear here. The Bible doesn't actually have any issue with alcohol in itself. It's drunkenness that it has an issue with. And it doesn't consider any item of clothing inherently sinful. But what happened at this college was that everyone came with their cultural view that was somehow overlapping with some form of Christian worldview, but everyone thought that they were right. And this is really where it becomes quite troublesome because we put before others our ethical standards and we want everyone else to follow our ethical standards because we think they're Christian. But actually, they're just as cultural as anyone else's. And the direct ramification from all of this, if I, if I have to come to an end on this section, is that we begin to identify ourselves, not only by what Christ has done, but by Christ 
plus that one thing that we do or don't do. By Christ, plus by the fact that I'm anti-vax, or that I'm for vaccines, or that I drink alcohol, or that I don't drink alcohol, whatever it is, it's Christ plus. And there's absolutely no hope. I know peace down that road, friends. As soon as we go down the path of Christ plus culture, Christ plus tribe, Christ plus effort, we come to a dead end. What makes Christianity so distinct is that it's only Christ. It's not Christ plus. But let me, let me take a step back here to explain that. You see, I think that all major religions and all major ideologies agree that something's wrong with us. Now, we might not all agree that something's wrong with all of us all of the time. But let's be honest, at least some of us, some of the time. And the question really is, and this is the question that all ideologies ask, is how do we fix it? How do we fix that brokenness that we feel? How do we fix that sense of guilt? How do we fix that, that shame, that sin? How do we get rid of that hurt? And it doesn't matter what ideology you turn to, they'll all, they'll all try to help you out here, but each will try to help you out by pointing you to a human strength. Now that human strength might be some form of religious self-denial. It might be, it's pointing you to a human strength of a group that's attempting systemic change. It might point you to any number of means of self-exertion, of maybe self-love, self-acceptance. You know, get up in the morning, look at yourself in the mirror and tell yourself that you're okay. You're valuable, you're accepted. That's just as an example. But there's so many ways in which we're told we need to exert strength. And I know some of you are strong. I know some of you are wonderfully strong. But if you're anything like me, then you long for a different message. Then you long for a message that tells you that you no longer need to be strong. The message that proclaims that the weak, the burdened, the infirm, the ones who struggle, the ones who feel like a fraud, the ones who don't have it all together, that they're invited and that they're welcomed by a God who says, come, in a wonderfully gentle manner. A God who accepts you just as you are. Based not on anything that you have done, based not on anything that your culture, your tribe, your group, has done, but based only on what Christ has done. The incarnate Jesus Christ through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, his ascension and his reconciliation of us with God. Friends, this is the basic Christian message. If you've heard it before, well, I'm glad. And if you haven't yet, that will not change. It's still the Christian message. And it's in our text today. Did you notice it? Because I missed it. Look again, look again at verse 3 in chapter 14. So that's right at the bottom here. What does it say? Why should the strong not condemn the weak? Because they have been accepted by God. Look again at the end of chapter 15, verse 7. Why are we to accept one another despite our obvious differences? Our obvious differences of opinion. Because Christ has accepted you. Yes. You. 
the foundation of our entire faith is the Lord Jesus Christ and his acts for you. There is no Christ plus. There is only Christ and the full assurance and the full security that he brings. And he bids you come. If you haven't come before, you can come now, but bids you come. Start your life afresh on the foundation of Christ and Christ alone. So if you take nothing else away from today's talk, please know that if you trust in Jesus Christ as Lord, then you're accepted. Then you're accepted just as you are. Now, he doesn't want you to stay as you are. He wants to bring healing. He wants to bring hope. He wants to bring change, some of which would, will be painful. But you are accepted as you are right now. So friends, how do we deal with Christian freedom? That's what, that was our initial question, right? How do we deal with matters where we disagree with one another? Well, the first step is that we, well, we don't do anything at all. We just remind ourselves that we are accepted wholeheartedly right now. And I think that knowledge should color how we act toward each other. At this point, I think a brief word is in order uh, about the nature of this word acceptance and, particular, and in particular its relationship to another word that we hear very often, that's tolerance. Um, and I here refer specifically to verse 1 where it says right at the beginning, accept the one whose faith is weak. Now the term in this passage, acceptance, is quite different to the way that I think we use it today. And I'm about to exaggerate slightly, so forgive me if I do. But I think our term acceptance today has has sort of three steps to it. The first is that I hear your opinion and I discover, wow, you're completely different to me. The second step is that I go, mm, I guess you have a right to that opinion. I mean, you're wrong, but you have a right to that opinion. And the third step is, the most important, we back off. We just step away. For the sake of peace between us, we leave it be. And then we can pat ourselves on the back Wow, what a wonderfully accepting person I am. I've just accepted them. Look at me. Slightly exaggerated, but I think that is what acceptance very often looks like. And I think that's what tolerance looks like as well. At least the old form of tolerance. I think there is a new form of tolerance, but the old form of tolerance is very similar. We were encouraged to just accept each other. And by the way, as a society, I think we're encouraged to accept each other. And then, then to sort of step away and hope that everyone sort of works for the common good of every man anyway, even if we have very different opinion. That tolerance is a, is a very fickle foundation for any society, has been shown in recent years, unfortunately, and, and maybe most poignantly in the US, um, especially in the aftermath of the, of the murder of George Floyd. Tolerance just provided no way forward. It just provided no, no hope, no alternative. People didn't know what to do with tolerance and the real hurt they were experiencing. Which is why I think tolerance very quickly was turned on its head, internationally, globally, maybe even here, to the point where, and bear with me here, it's no longer tolerance that's accepted. It's actually intolerance. That is to say that unless you hold to the exact story somebody else is telling you, they will kick you to the curb. 
So it doesn't matter whether you're listening or yeah, whether you're listening to the conservative right or the liberal left, unless you hold to the exact story, the exact narrative they're giving you, you'll just be cancelled. And you'll be stamped a bigot, a fundamentalist, a people hater, a liberal swine, born on the wrong side of history, etc., etc. Intolerance has become the name of the game. So into that crazy state of affairs where, may I remind you, that three years ago we thought tolerance was the highest ideal of human behavior and it's now seen as harmful to humanity. Well, what, what perspective does the Christian Bible offer us? Now, I recognize, by the way, that that's an incredibly charged question because by many the Bible is seen as, a, as, a, as an ancient relic, as something that has hurtful or harmful views, as something that ought to be categorically rejected. But I figured you're here this morning, so you, you might be willing to listen to what the Bible has to say, or at least, at least to look at the evidence and consider it with me for a moment. Because I think that you'll find that the Bible is still incredibly relevant, and it's in fact helpful on current issues. So let's take another look at, oh, my PowerPoint just ended, well, there you go, at our passage. That word accept that you see right at the beginning, I said it's not what you expect it to be from the English. This term in Romans here literally means to extend a welcome, to receive one another into one's home or into one's circle of acquaintances. May I read that again? To extend a welcome, to receive into one's home or circle of acquaintances. The terminology, as far as acceptance goes, is supremely positive. It's warm, it's welcome, and it's engaging. Which sparks two very brief comments that I unfortunately can't go into at any great depth. Uh, but two observations. And the first one is simply this. I think the acceptance of the Bible shows that cultural acceptance is, is really quite empty. It's quite empty and it's in fact selfish. Not engaging with the other person who has a different viewpoint to me is actually, well, who is that for? Who are you doing that for? You're doing that for you, right? Because of your ease of life that you're thinking of, and so it's better to just not engage. So it's actually not a loving action. It's selfish. The second, the second um, observation, again, very briefly, is that I think that Christian acceptance is sufficiently robust to allow for difference of opinion without running over the person on the one hand or crushing them for their opinion or just, or just leaving them to their own devices on the other end. Christian acceptance shows a surprising middle way or has the potential of showing a surprising middle way, one of grace and one of hope. However, I also want you to notice that Paul in this passage is not saying that every opinion is equally valid. That's a very common thing that we sort of, or how we view society and history today. Just read that first sentence again. Accept the one whose faith is weak. You cannot say that somebody else is weak unless you've, okay folks, this is, this is where it gets a bit hairy. Hold on to your, hold on to your chairs unless you judge. Paul judges. Paul judges in this passage, and I think he's encouraging us to judge as well. I'll say more on that. But judgment itself is not what 
is at fault here. You see, we, we're used to statements like, oh, only, only God can judge me now. Well, by the way, guys, that, that should probably scare you a bit more than it, than it does, that sentence. You know, it's fun to throw around. But beside that, I think it's actually, it's actually wrong. Because I think the Bible exhorts us to know right from wrong, good from evil. Judgment itself is never the issue. And let's be honest, we all judge all the time, right? And yet somehow, some people manage to judge and act in love. And I think that's what's at stake here. Verse 3, just look at the end, of, or look at verse 3 again. It refers to the strong, to those who eat everything. And it commands them to not treat with contempt the one who eats. Contentment. That's what's at stake here. It's not an issue of judgment, but how we treat each other once we've done so. Do we accept each other? Or do we condemn each other with an air of self-importance, with a self-righteousness and an assurance that's just wrong? You see, in this passage, intriguingly, both the narrow-minded and the strong-minded, so both the weak and the strong. By the way, let me, let me just stop for just a second. Weak, in this case, only refers to, not what you're thinking right now, but only refers to those who hold on to Christ plus their cultural ideas of what they need to do. That ref that's the reference to weak. It's not how we use the term today, right? But in this case, the weak, the narrow-minded, and the strong, the broad-minded, they're actually actively condemning each other. So let's look at them a little bit more carefully. And we'll only look at verses 1 to 3. By the way, did you notice we're still in verses 1 to 3? I hope you have a lot of time. Um, but verses 1 to... Th I'm just kidding, guys. We're getting there. We're getting there. But verses 1 to 3 only deal with the weak. And you see that I've left out a whole bunch of verses. Well, the rest of those verses up to verse 14 actually also deal primarily with the weak. Paul judges the weak. Because the weak set themselves up as lords over the strong, over those who are free-spirited. They've sort of painted themselves as holier than thou's, who can look down on others because of certain things they do or they just abstain from, things they don't do. You know, this group reminds me a little bit of that caricature. I've actually not met a person like this. Maybe one day I will. But you know, it's that old Christian person who leans out of the window, you know, just grumpy look on their face and with the thoughts of someone out there is having just a bit too much fun. You know, that's, that's sort of the... That's sort of the idea that we get from, from this weak group because they can look to certain acts in their life, and in this case it was in particular to not drinking alcohol, to not eating meat, and to keeping the Sabbath. And they can say, I'm superior. And Paul judges them for it. So is the answer then that we need to be strong, like the broad-minded in this passage. Well, to that, we must say, well, the positive thing, let's start with the positive about the strong. The positive thing about the strong is that they understand that Christ's forgiveness is complete, that his cleansing is complete, and they can live in freedom. They can enjoy the good gifts God has given them. Oh, and there are many good gifts on this earth. And without a guilty conscience, they can, they can partake. On matters where God is silent, they can enjoy. But they fall into the same problem as the weak do. They very quickly turn that freedom around 
and treat the weak with contempt. And this is very normal behavior. If you're very liberal, it's hard to understand why anyone else wouldn't be. Why would anyone else restrain themselves, bridle themselves? And so you, instead of getting to know them better, you poke fun at them. That seems to be what the strong did here. And that also Paul condemns. Instead, he encourages, especially the strong, by the way, from verse 14 all the way down, it's all, the, all about the strong. He encourages us, all of us, though, to use our power for the good of the person across from you. You see, the issue is that the two parties needed to accept one another as they were. In verse 21, Paul simply says, stop eating, stop drinking, if it distresses the person across from you. Deny yourself your freedom for the sake of your sibling, is what he says. And I think that's really a Christian ethic. Let's return to to the Bible school that I mentioned earlier for just a moment. A friend of mine who actually studied before me, um, and he has an incredibly dry sense of humor, he decided that he wanted to start a new tradition. Um, he, he loves traditions for some reason, but yeah, he started a new tradition where on Tuesdays, him and a few friends would get together, all males, and they would wear really short rugby shorts. And I mean, really short. And I think on Wednesdays, they wore sleeveless tops or something like that. Well, needless to say, remember the melting pot of all different cultures, African cultures that I just mentioned, there were some who, who disagreed with that practice because surely, surely that amount of skin has the potential of moving somebody to lust. To this, he he sarcastically responded that um, nobody in that group, um, or rather, that the kind of person in that group, himself included, well, their physique just didn't encourage lust. Um, It might have, in fact, cured the the odd wandering eye. Um, Still, he, uh, he eventually stopped that tradition. He abandoned it because he realized that he wasn't really doing anyone any favors, neither himself nor the people around him. He denied himself. He denied himself a freedom that he knew he had because of somebody else's conscience. And that's irrespective of how ridiculous he might have thought, I've never asked him this, but irrespective of how ridiculous he might have thought somebody else's view was. Now, friends, I I know that that sounds like an incredibly absurd way of life, right? Because it's so countercultural. And it's much easier to tell the weak to just, come on, just get with the program. But that's not what Paul does. Instead, he encourages the strong to work hard at understanding the weak, to treat all people with respect and dignity. And this is where it gets personal. Where is that respect? Where is, where is that dignity today? Where is that desire to understand each other, to d- welcome each other in even when we disagree? It, it almost seems like if I look around at our culture, even in this country, and I've just returned, but I've spent a bit of time here, it seems like we've given each other carte blanche, like a free slate to just do whatever we want and to ignore the most important command of all, to love one another. Now, one recent example that I think might flare up again very soon, at least if epidemiologists have to believe, is the sheer lack of respect and dignity that we have with one another 
around conversations of COVID. How many, how many churches, or, or maybe making it more personal, how many friends, how many family members have genuinely been hurt because you cared more about your own opinion than you did about them? A lecturer, and I'm, I'll take you back to Bible school one last time. I should be charging for these Bible school lessons. But a lecturer once turned to me and he said to me the following words, which I thought were some of the wisest words I've, I've ever heard. And they're simply this. Vilko, people don't care what you know until they know you care. Do people know that you care about them? Do you... Do people know that you care about them and not just your own opinion? I think as a church, I think as Christians, it's time that we, we have a bit of healthy introspection here. Now remember that this does not mean that we need to have the same opinion about everything. Oh, it's wonderful if we do. It's easy when we do, right? But that's not necessarily what Paul is saying here. We don't all need to believe the same thing. It's okay if you have an opinion that is different. But whatever your opinion, that doesn't give you the right to act out of or to, to neglect love. Instead, you're still encouraged to respect and to care for the other, even when that demands sacrifice of you. You really ought to be seeking the good of the other person even when you disagree with their views on COVID, with, you, with their views on social drinking. You ought to be seeking their good even when you don't understand their views of veganism or eating meat for that matter. You ought to be seeking their good even when they invest obscene amounts of money to nurse that coffee habit of theirs that you just don't understand when you don't understand how they're spending their time, their money. Or maybe more privately within your home, when you and your spouse disagree on how to raise that three-year-old or on how frequently to have sex. Friends, the question for all of those issues is the same. How can you act out of love for the good of the other person? For all of these issues, all of these that I've mentioned and many more that you have in your mind right now, God has given us freedom. So returning now to that question that we asked right at the beginning, how do we discern God's voice in these matters? How do we know what God wants from us? Well, in a way, it's, it's very easy. In a way, it's hard, but in a way, it's easy. Whatever your view, and remember, it's, it's okay for you to have a view. You're still called to give up your freedom to love and respect your neighbor. Now, very briefly, that does not mean that you need to become anyone's doormat or that you need to open yourself up to repeated abuse. That's not what this is saying. There might be times where you even need to step away from a situation, and that too is permissible. But that doesn't negate that our general attitude should be one of free-spirited service. And friends, especially here in Namibia, free-spirited service across racial divides across socioeconomic lines. That's what's asked of us. We all like being right. And let's be honest, to love somebody is hard. 
So I want to challenge you as I close. I want to challenge you by asking you, what's the next step for you? Who will you love that you obviously disagree with? What will you give up for them? Knowing that Jesus Christ loves you just the way you are right now. Let's pray. Our gracious God, may you who gives endurance and encouragement give us the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you be merciful as we seek to accept one another? Would you help us on this difficult, difficult road? May you act for our good and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. This is Rico Veca, and I am also a pastor at New Song Family Church. I want to thank you for listening to this message today, and it is my hope that you will join us again for another New Song Family Church podcast.